0: Well, hello everyone, welcome back. It is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire with Terps in the City. And as Terps in the City is a show that talks about all things cannabis, and this season in particular, we're focused on my transition into the New York market, my return home to my native New York, and I have some very interesting guests. So uh, on today's episode, I'd like to introduce you to none other than Imani Dawson. Imani Dawson is an activist, and she is a soldier in the movement, and I have so, 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 so much respect for her. And I, I want to get to know her better, and I figured you guys all did as well. Now, again, New York is the backdrop for this season, and I think Imani is a mover and shaker that you may not really um, know about, or, and I think she's underappreciated. So let's go ahead and show some love for Imani Dawson. Welcome, Imani.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you, Cheryl Esquire. That's right. ADA. That's right.
0: I check people when they forget the Esquire in print. I, I
1: work with attorneys. I know how they feel about that hard earned credential.
0: Those three okay. Those three letters. But I want to hear more about you and your experience. I, I think we can start at the beginning because you've been in the industry for quite a long time. How many years have you been in?
1: Wow, that is a great question. At this point, I would say that my interest in cannabis as an industry really began in 2016. So that okay. makes this year lucky number six.
0: So we're same. Same with my interest in the legal industry started 2016. So we're we have the same. We're we, we're actually singing from the same song sheet. And then what are you doing currently in the cannabis industry for like, is it your job job or, or do you have, or is it a side thing? What is the cannabis for you right now?
1: I mean, that's a great question. Having been associated with cannabis and specifically the New York space since 2016, it's given me the benefit to pivot my personal skills and my background into a space that is rapidly growing. And I think, like a lot of other people, I'm still navigating the space, trying to figure out like how I can best be of service, and also, you know, create the kind of legacy that we talk about being available here. I am someone who is a storyteller by trade. I love, first of all, I love podcasting because I love conversations. So I listen to a few, and I have added Terps in the City to my list. And I come into this space. From that lens, I started my professional career as a uh, once I committed myself to like the creative arts because I actually studied business in college. I had gone to an independent school on the Upper East Side and had was from one of am from actually M from one of the um, toughest neighborhoods in old Brooklyn. <laughs> it's nice. still tough. It's gentrifying. We have our coffee shops in East New York now. We've never had a coffee shop. And we have, you can tell the, the demographics are shifting even there. But growing up, it was one of the poorest and most neglected and underserved areas of the city. And so I had a journey from East New York to like the most elite, most privileged community in our city. And that was my daily juxtaposition Monday through Friday for like six years and there is where I kind of received the support to develop my voice to kind of question things and also learning what it means to be an outsider and learning how to observe and tell like my story like me in proximity to the space and also tell the stories of others around. And that's also, that was all happening up against the height of the drug war in Brooklyn and in the city. So I'm growing up in the 80s and 90s. like When the Central Park jogger situation happened and five innocent young Black and brown boys were essentially framed, I was part of, I was the same age as them. Watching all of this happen, like watching how our communities were policed and how one chance encounter with the police could upend somebody's entire life. I know people who got caught with cannabis possession and that started a chain that led to mass incarceration. So my feeling about cannabis growing up was that Nancy and Ron said to just say no. So that's what I was going to do because I was a good kid. I was an ambitious kid. I was like, I, you know what? I don't want to get trapped up in this. Drugs are bad. I buy it. So you believe the hype? Totally, totally. But I mean, that was also a key part of like my identification as a kid and also like you know, how I protected myself from a growing up in a traumatic neighborhood under traumatic circumstances. Like I was blessed to have a really warm and loving and caring and family village, but we were still poor, we were Black, um, and we were subject to a lot of the challenges that come even in a city like New York, which, you know, now feels sometimes like a progressive bastion until you peel the layer back and you're like, oh my goodness, are people being displaced in our city? Why can no one afford to live here? And you start asking yourself hard questions about New York, but then it was a, a much more harsh and challenging place to be just in general. And so I was determined to just succeed. I didn't know what that meant other than just being adult enough to take care of myself and didn't really consume cannabis. As a matter of fact, I remember hearing that a friend of mine was using cannabis in college, and I was like so worried about him. I was like, "He's smoking weed. This is the beginning of the end, right?" And so I, a I was drug
0: that the false narrative.
1: In the gateway caught up in the gateway. And then also, what would happen if he got caught and then he got kicked out of school or whatever, or lost his scholarship? And I actually remember calling. I want. It was like a like a national drug hotline, and I was like. Oh my goodness! Like, what'll happen if somebody uses cannabis? That's amazing. And they were basically like, "It'll, they'll be fine." Right? (laughs) I was like, "Oh, okay." We're not here for that. We're
0: here for real addiction.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They were like, "Call me when you want some advice about crack." Like, you then they didn't really want to talk about cannabis. But that was my first inkling that perhaps um, this drug wasn't as deadly as I had been led to believe. And this is, of course, juxtaposed like juxtaposed to the elders, like my mom's generation who use cannabis as a way to like unwind from their own pressures on the weekend. So like, even like I'm telling you, like, oh my God, I was like, first it's cannabis and then it's crack. I knew people (laughs) who shall remain nameless because they will be like, Imani, why are you talking about our business on a podcast? Right, um, but they would they would go and smoke every weekend. It was it was part of their social interaction. And now that I know more about and cannabis, many parents
0: and many parents, right?
1: I know that it was also medicine. It was stress release, stress management, like eight, like being in the eighties and like navigating life, um, especially as a single parent. Reaganomics. If, uh, come on, yep. You listen, we weren't just
0: <laughs> don't say no to drugs. They were like say yes to this capitalism. So. Um, navigating that in, in Brooklyn back in the 80s and 90s for for parent with um, multiple children, it, it wasn't easy. And one thing that you touched upon that I kind of want to explore a little bit is the duality of being a, a black child where you had the benefit of access to very elite spaces, privileged spaces and then the return to your your own domestic situation which you as you described it is a traumatizing environment as far as the, what the neighborhood was like and the things that you witnessed. So let's talk about that and and with that how has that prepared you for the duality of being true to your culture in canvas space but still having to navigate with these large companies and and be present in these white spaces in order to give access to others. So can we talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with just like the experience of going to independent school and then coming home. In some way, it was difficult initially. It was, I would say those first years were the hardest Mm -hmm. of my childhood because I went from a sort of enclave of gifted students who all had the same sort of cultural lens that I did coming from the same community to then being in a program, I was in a program called Prep for Prep, which gets minority students into independent schools, or I should say students of color nice. um, into independent schools. And so I, I then went from like one sort of cohort of really smart and curious students to another cohort where we, as part of the training for the program are really introduced to like what it means to study but also to really work hard in a school environment like right. that was the first time I really had to work hard and then getting to Spence itself the work was definitely more challenging than I was used to but the biggest the biggest issue for me initially was feeling just very much like I didn't belong in the space because I in some ways represented like the antithesis of the typical Spence student right, right. like I was poor and most people were not. I was black. Most people were white. Right. I came from Brooklyn and people looked at me with like sadness and pity in their eyes when they were like, Oh my God, you're from Brooklyn. And it's so funny now because I go back to reunions and like, oh my God, Brooklyn is so hot. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome for making it. We well, made it that hot. way. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, you're so welcome, girls. So there was a lot of there was a real sense of like not belonging, right? And, and wanting to belong. I, I, I think that I am one of those people that thrives in community. And so it was hard. And then I just kind of determined that I belong there, first of all, right. that I recognize the benefit that I brought to the space, which is a perspective that most of the girls in my class had not had up until that point. The way that they engaged with Black people were as, so here is a peer. And I also recognize that I got a much better education than most of the people who lived in my community. Like, I am yeah. by better education, I mean that I was lucky enough to be taught by progressive instructors, even if they didn't always, that wasn't always the reflection of like the parent body or even the student body, but they were open and honest about. Issues like structural racism, like that being in school is the first time I ever heard that like there was a direct correlation to like enslavement, the enslavement of our ancestors for hundreds of years, and the current condition of black people, because as you grow up and you start to wonder and you look beyond your family or and for some people, maybe you didn't have to look beyond your family. you're like, why is there this attribute attribution of all bad things? Uh, why is there an association Mm. of of bad, bad things with blackness, right? Like that starts
0: and black market and all those things. Yes.
1: A hundred percent. So I I am grateful to, for the opportunity to to learn how to engage with all different types of people and also to value my own voice and what I contribute, what I can contribute to, to a space like going, being like, educated and women-centered environments was extremely empowering for me. And it that. also mirrored my my home life where my mother was a single parent, raising daughters. So it, it it taught me how to feel confident and prepared in any room. And that has served me well throughout my career and cannabis is, is sort of the the most recent iteration of what has been a really colorful and momentous journey for me
0: I love that. Thank you for sharing. And I, I think a lot of people of culture have similar experiences with that, to things on television now, and now the television's showing more diversity, which, which reflects that that child who has to, for, to further their entire family. Everyone's hopes and dreams is hanging on their success, and that pressure and going into those sometimes unwelcome spaces. But I love how you talked about your transition to uh, a a, peer, a position of power where you're like, I'm bringing a lot here as well. I'm giving you perspective as well. I have confidence. And the piece that I hadn't really ever thought about is being educated in women-centered spaces. And I haven't experienced that. So I think that also kind of contributes to, to who you are as a person. And I, I love to hear that. And it's something for consideration. You You mentioned that some of your peers in school, their only interface with people of color were with their servants and how you had to kind of help them understand that your your personhood. And I think Viola Davis in a recent article I read had a similar experience where one of the directors on one of her movies called her Louise and then she I think the name was Louise. I want to say Louise. And then she um, realized that that was the name of his maid and and, and those types of, it's not even a microaggression, but it's just like a painful experience that or a reminder of the fact that we are not in view for so many people. And I think going through the cannabis industry and navigating an event, sometimes we all know when we go into that space or someone, an ally is introducing us and the person's eyes glaze over like, They're not really trying to meet you, but they're just shaking your hand and, you
1: know,
0: know, they look like, oh, okay, hey, you're here, but how'd you get here kind of thing. Um, But
1: are you making me money?
0: Yeah, exactly. And and deciding how much do I invest, want to invest in like saying, oh, this is who I am and what I do. So you see me as valuable or you just leave them there. Whatever you're thinking now of me, I'll leave you with that but you missed out, kind of like that Julia Roberts moment with with the shopping. So I, I think that's really interesting. And another point that you made was about the the tragedy of the Central Park Five and how they were framed, wrongly convicted, tremendous abuse, and they're still dealing with the trauma of, of that incident. And recently I was watching an epi- episode of Atlanta where, I don't know if you've seen this season, but it really deals with a lot of race-related issues Huh. I'm been
1: it's I've I'm hearing it drum bubble up, but Netflix. I'm blaming Netflix, y'all. You heard it here first. Like I am now a viewer that really has to binge. Right. I need to have four, five, six episodes at a time. Gotcha. I need my mom cocoon where no one bothers mom because we know that she's watching TV, right. and so I am waiting for that time. I don't want to watch like a you know, one episode and be like, oh, what happens next? Right. So I haven't watched it. I'm
0: going to binge it. Okay. I'm- I highly suggest it because it, it even, certain parts, I was uncomfortable and I'm like, wow, but it, we had to talk about these things. These are topics we've never seen. So the one that I just saw, and again, I kind of binge too, but I don't binge binge post-season. Uh, I'm like mid-season. I'll be like, oh, I've watched Atlanta for three weeks and I'll, I'll watch it. But one episode, it was, they were just talking about like a clothing line and the responsibility of clothing lines. And basically the clothing line had created these Central Park Five branded like jackets, like attire, and everybody's dancing, and it's like white people wearing these Central Park Five or whatever. And it happens, though. It seems so ridiculous that you would take a cultural tragedy and make it into a uh, and commercialize it, making it into a commodity, basically commercializing pain, right? But it happens so much. And in cannabis, we see where the Rastafari culture or the hip hop culture is sometimes bastardized in ways that can be offensive. Or even if it's like, no, we want to elevate these cultures, but how diverse is your board that made the decisions on how you roll it out? how you benefit the people that are, that are responsible for this, this iconic cultural insignia. So any thoughts on the, the borrowing of culture or, or, or how, how we can make sure that we are responsible as an industry as we're elevating culture? There's a lot of talk of social equity. There's a lot of talk about indigenous people. Any thoughts on how to do that in a very responsible way?
1: I think that's a great question. I actually want to tie like my past and my experience as a storyteller, and also just someone who is like who decided very early that I don't need anyone to define my value in this space. I'm going to let you know what I bring to the table, and I'm going to operate like that. I think that that is a hundred percent myself and. You know, my family, I'm lucky enough to work in cannabis with my sisters, but that we bring to this space is that we belong here and we recognize what we contribute. I feel like our country has a history of exploiting Black people, Black labor, Black culture, Black love, like, and also having people who are like tragedy pimps at the same time. Like, it's like everything is monetized. I think that we see in this space where the grave injustice of mass incarceration, which we all know was fueled by marijuana arrests, drug arrests, the the war on drugs, like that in and of itself has been the fuel that has for so long, like powered the cannabis legalization movement. And that's Mm -hmm. really important, right? And I don't think that the harm... To black and brown communities, to BIPOC communities, and most particularly black people, because I feel like we have borne the brunt of, of prohibition and its penalties. I feel like we have this opportunity right now to change the 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 culture. We have been changing the culture and pol- empowering the movement, but we are also bringing our culture, bringing our sort of arbiters of what are the standards for this country, for pop culture, what's cool, yes. our black cool, just like our ancestors who were part of the jazz age, who, you know, connected with indigenous communities coming from Mexico that were using this plant, who have their own history of using the plant, made it cool in the 1920s. I've borne witness to hip-hop transforming how cannabis is seen in our pop culture since I started paying attention to hip hop, right? Like I get the association and now I understand better the history that we were kind of born into and how cannabis prohibition was used to criminalize students and people who are on the progressive side and put them in the hippie category, if you will, and black people, right? Yeah. So I understand like how it, it got the pop culture perception Came to be like this hippie, stinky, countercultural um, association. But hip hop took that and we made something that was youth driven, something that was fresh and wasn't something to be mocked. It was something to be admired. And I feel very strongly that we help legitimize cannabis. And as a community, we need to benefit from its emergence as an industry.
0: I agree. And in my legacy work in New York, I, I get I've gotten I've been privileged to work with Umi and M1 from Dead Press through Steve uh, D'Angelo's Justice Foundation and Unlock, which is a unified legacy operators count, a council, which actually the, the website just went live. and We got some good press this week. But that's one of the things that Umi uh, spoke about in his interview is that connection between hip-hop and and cannabis and the fact that hip-hop was considered illicit or forbidden, or you could get arrested for playing it loud at a certain period of time, and now it's been kind of taken over by mainstream culture. I want to make a pivot in our conversation because I want to make sure that I'm role-modeling to the industry that just because you have a Black guest on your show doesn't mean that they can only speak to black-related topics. You are—we've talked, we've spoken about your your his history as a black woman. We've spoken to about your history as as a woman, and we've we've spoken to your history as a native New Yorker. But you know, I am an advocate for also saying, don't just put black people on the social equity panel, minority panel, put women on the women panel, but we can speak to all topics all types of topics. So I wanna make a pivot and, and thank you for sharing because I think there we need to have these conversations and I wanna push that forward, but I also wanna make it clear that you are professional in the industry, and you can go toe-to-toe with any other professional in the industry on a variety of topics. So with that said, let's talk about your work with Normal. Normal is one of the oldest advocacy organizations in the United States, around the world, and, and you do work with Normal in, in, the, in New York. Let's, let's hear about the work that you guys are doing as an organization as Normal and, and the role that you play there.
1: Normal is as one of the oldest organizations, I think the oldest actually organization created to legalize cannabis in America and like transform how it was treated as a community is doing what it's been doing since its inception. And that is fighting for for legalization and ultimately the normalization of cannabis in our everyday lives. And I think that the most horrible part of prohibition for me is the fact that cannabis was labeled evil because black and brown people were benefiting from its medicine. And I think that the organization has been evolving in terms of like how they make the argument, the argument itself that cannabis prohibition is wrong and that marijuana ought to be available or cannabis ought to be available for medicinal purposes, but for any sort of responsible adult use is that has been consistent. I think how they're telling the story is really evolving. And you said something um, earlier, and I want to affirm what you said about how Black people are seen in professional spaces in this country. I do want to say that I in my work in this space as a communicator as a community educator as someone who has helped facilitate conversations with the legacy market about the upcoming opportunity and encourage them to learn more and also expand working to expand the definition of legacy so that it also includes people like my parents who were essentially medicating themselves using cannabis right there's a whole history and experience of people, for whom this is, you know, how they healed themselves, how they, you know, dealt with the anxiety and stress of their times. Yes. Um. And and in their lives, I am working in by choice, in BIPOC spaces. I am advancing our interests in this industry. I'm someone who's worked as a television producer and as a, a comms like a calm strategist, and I'm bringing that same energy into the space. I am helping to create enlightened and empowered cannabis leaders, consumers, advocates. And I think that we all have to be advocates who happen to be black and brown. And that is by choice. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I see very clearly what this industry owes us. And I'm here to help ensure that we get it. So a lot of the work that I've done around communications has been about advancing equity in the space and not just social equity, but like a true, like equitable industry where there is room for people who are small producers, people who are employers, people who are learning about STEM and using cannabis as the end product, like for the benefits of cannabis, that is beautiful. That is, that is where I have chosen to to position myself. So that's what I do as as a company. We do communication, social impact communication. We are in the education and training space, helping our clients define what equity means and transform their culture before it, you know, becomes stuck using an, an anti progress lens. And also educating consumers about the fact that they need to be choosing cannabis products um, and brands that have re- robust relationships with the community and are actively working to make cannabis a better space.
0: I think and that's powerful. And so powerful. So powerful. And, and and I don't know if you were um, able to witness the United Nations Regenerative Cannabis Live event that happened um, a few weeks ago. And I they- did and the focus at ESC were you present or did you watch it after I watched the I watched the video feed
1: okay. I was not present but I did work in support of some of the partners that were there so I'm completely supportive of this sort of global advancement of cannabis as a social good as a um, way forward through ESG and having it be a space and an industry that ultimately values everyone and then leads the way for a transformation of our society where everyone can find a, a place and we could stop fighting each other Correct. or operating from a place where there there has to be one group has to, to be oppressed or multiple groups have to be oppressed for the other groups to survive. Like I think Cannabis can be used as a tool for good here in the United States. And that, getting back to your question about Normal, is also centered in the work and relationship that I have with Normal as part of their DEI efforts and helping to bridge the gap, the senior board members about like the cannabis culture that they fought for and the legalization that they fought for and the way that they see cannabis and the way it has existed for all of us.
0: And that's, that's like the critical role that I see you playing in this industry or like, I don't, I don't want to, I, I like people defining themselves, so I'm not trying to define you, but I think the value that you bring is, is tremendous and being able to help people in corporate environments or even people who have an audience through communication to really align with these ESG goals. I think you have a bird's eye view of what um, is possible, what that could look like, and you, you have the roadmap. To get them from their existing environment, where I would say ignorance of not knowing that they are missing this piece to seeing, okay, after these talks about ESG, we want to get there, but we don't know how. I think incorporating yourself as an expert into their strategic approach to their growth strategy is exactly the way forward. So, how can I? This is a question I ask all my guests How can I support you? How can Terpson City support you to get to what we like to call the next level? in your career and and in your, whether it's your career, your philanthropy, your, your, your mission.
1: What I love about what you're doing, Cheryl, is that you are, you are telling stories to an engaged audience of people who, I would like to, believe, share your view and your passion for an industry where everyone can be represented. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to have come on the show. Thank you. And to talk a little bit about my experience and give folks some context for the work that I'm doing and where I've come from to get to this moment, both myself and my sister Dashida my sister Ice and our Dawson group. I would love to talk to you more about the work that you're doing.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm ready.
1: I think that we are at a point now, just as an industry and also in the city, where we need to be working in concert to support equity, right? Like, I think we've done a lot of great work in our individual sort of spheres, particularly at the, s- the state level. And I want to acknowledge all the advocacy groups like Normal and MPP, even ones like. M- M4MM that were created specifically for people of color and our advancement in this industry. And I think we need to continue that sort of elevation. I'm proud to work with Chem, which is really about the the cannabis health equity movement and ensuring that our communities are prepared for the world beyond prohibition, right? Right. After prohibition, I can see legalization coming. I know you can see it. You are moving across the country to help facilitate that and to help advance equity here in New York and other places as well, I'm sure. So I would love to talk to you about that and see how we can work together.
0: We, we absolutely will. And we will soon. And I'm ready and I'm grateful for you. And the last question before we close out Terps in the City and I ask all my guests is, if I could introduce you to one person in the world, if some who would you want to be watching the show? Who's that person who can help you move your mission forward? So if you can meet one person, who would that be?
1: Oh my God. The minute you said that, I was like Oprah Winfrey. It's so funny as someone who considers myself a communications girl or a storyteller, like Oprah Winfrey was one of my original role models. I love that she looked like she could be in my family. And someone who looked like she could be a mom or an auntie or a cousin was on TV and setting the standards. And I think she still has this iconic role, both in our culture and also for mainstream audiences. And I want, I know Oprah is paying attention to cannabis. Correct. I want her also to pay attention to the ways in which it has impacted communities of color and to lend her voice and her platform to advancing equity in the space. So if I could sit down yes, um, and talk to anyone, it would be Oprah. And the first thing that I would do was thank her for Her show and the way in which she's impacted women globally, her encouragement to live like our best lives. Right. And I would then pivot the conversation to talk about the benefit of cannabis as plant based medicine, how it can help us bridge gaps in health equity, economic equity, justice, social equity, and enroll her in the cause.
0: Well, I think that's an excellent choice and Oprah can move mountains and she's all of our role model, right? So I right. think it's a fantastic choice. So Oprah, reach out to us. We would love to have a conversation and move this forward. I'm
1: saying Oprah is the community <laughs> auntie. She's yes, the community she auntie.
0: is. She is. And unfortunately that's our time. And Imani, you have been such a blessing by peeing on and, and being open to share. That's the end of Terps in the City for you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Information on how to contact Imani will be in the show notes. I want to shout out to Dan Humiston, our our producer for all of his hard work and tune in next time, but we're going to keep this going, keep this flowing and see you next time on Terps in the City.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
0: Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out a major journey today on all major podcast platforms.